This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Todd Gitlin, sociologist, political writer, novelist, and cultural commentator. Todd received his BA in mathematics from Harvard, an MA in political science from the University of Michigan, and a PhD in sociology from the University of California, Berkeley. He helped to organize the first national demonstration movement against the Vietnam War and was president of Students for a Democratic Society, a 1960s student activist movement. Todd's authored 15 books and hundreds of articles found in publications such as the New York Times and Washington Post. He's a professor of journalism and sociology at Columbia University, where he serves as chair of the PhD program in communications. Todd's the recipient of the Bosch Berlin Prize in Public Policy and is a fellow at the American Academy in Berlin. Todd, it's great to have you with us today. You bet. Same for me. Were there childhood experiences that led to your interest in media and political science? Hmm. Interesting. Um, when I, yeah, I think probably the most important um, trigger event in my life was uh, the absence of a television set in my household until I was 10 years old. So if I wanted to watch Howdy Doody or uh, The Queen's Inaugural, uh, what are, they don't call it inaugural, they call it uh, coronation, uh, or a baseball game, I would go to a neighbor's apartment. And so uh, television had this sort of special appointment quality. Uh, it didn't become a, a, a piece of furniture in my living room until I was 10. And I think the upshot was that um, television was was odd to me in, in a way that it, it had ceased to be in my generation. There was something ill-fitting or hilarious about it. And um, at an early stage when I fancied myself a writer or wannabe writer, I, I wrote a series of parodies of television uh, series. I wrote one about Perry Mason and uh, I think Have Gun Will Travel. Those were the two I wrote in writing class. So I, there was so, some, uh, television had for me something of, of, uh, of course it had something of the same aura of magic that it had for many others, but for me it also had something of the aura of the ridiculous and um, the ridiculous of a certain sort, ridiculous that was hamstrung by conventions. I think I became I was, I was sort of suddenly aware of how stylized it was, that people didn't normally talk this way. Uh, they didn't use those cadences. Um, and commercials, of course, were uh, obtrusive and, and also silly. So I think something about the uh, sort of television crashing into my life at that point where I already was a reader and uh, out there in the fourth grade world, uh, <laughs> I think it somehow uh, made me appreciate television as 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 something that had developed historically, not to put too fine a point on it. It's something that didn't grow on trees. Gotcha. And did that also stoke your interest in writing at that time? Oh, God knows where that came from. I, I liked writing uh, as early as the fourth grade. At least that's what I can remember. Um I liked uh, I liked studying vocabulary in 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 high school. I started writing poetry in high school. 
um, and uh, I, and and I fancied that that was what I wanted to be a writer. I mean, I was being groomed to be a mathematician, uh, but actually, writing made my blood. Well, I, I I can't say which made my blood blood run faster. I I, I had many loves, but but certainly writing was for me sort of the master craft and the and the master juncture point to the world. And speaking of your student time and your blood running faster, how did your time as a student lead to your involvement with uh, Students for a Democratic Society? Well, it, it was because I was at Harvard in 1960 that I became acquainted with uh, what was a, a growing, although still rather tiny, uh, spirit of, of rejection, refusal of the nuclear arms race. This was a time of nuclear tests going off in the atmosphere and a whole lot of uh, bravado talk from political candidates, including Jack Kennedy, about uh, the missile gap and the need to be tougher and more aggressive. Um, and it, there was something in the, in the air that, uh, in October of 1960, just before the, the Kennedy election, that, that sent me to a rally um, organized by the Commit Committee for Sane Nuclear Policy, where I picked up a pamphlet with some interesting readings in it, and a button which I put on the next day, it was a mushroom cloud with an X over it, and a, and a fellow came up to me in my house, as we called them at Harvard, and said, oh, I see you wearing that button, let's have lunch. And it turned out he'd been, he had just founded the uh, a, a peace group called Toxin, T-O-C-S-I-N, French word for alarm bell. It all seemed very appealing to me. It was, it was smart, not strenuously moralistic. Um, it was urgent, but um, knowledge-based. So I threw myself into that with a uh, great velocity and after a couple of years I started meeting people from national organizations of which SDS was one and was the one I felt most drawn to and one thing led to another and uh, one thing led to another and I uh, found myself uh, being elevated into the leadership of this organization although I had a certain ambivalence about going on as a political activist uh, as my central calling nonetheless I, I uh, I was called, and I rose to the occasion. And what was the goal of the organization? Well, the slogan, the the, the phrase that that became best known as as a way to describe uh, the, the 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 aspiration was participatory democracy. Um, one way of putting that was people have the right to uh, make decisions that affect their lives. Um, what so that was sort of the high uh, the high sound of the organization, the high aspiration. What was what was going on was that you had people active in the civil rights movement, you had people active in the peace movement as I had been, and also civil rights I had been as had become as well. There were people involved in university reform efforts. Uh, there were people who were involved, some some as as demonstrators and but some as intellectuals, and, and SDS conceived of itself as an intellectual home for people who, were, uh, who had these concerns, uh, thought there was a, a special role for a movement of young people, especially students, uh, that it, need to, it needed to, you know, the, it, SDS has originally described itself as an organization of radicals and liberals. Uh, and uh, we sort of saw ourselves as 
uh, in, in some way related to the mainstream of American politics, but but as a as a as a as an edge, as a left edge of it. Did your involvement with SDS shape your role as a political scientist? Well, I don't think I ever really became a political scientist. I only got a master's degree. Uh, I certainly read a lot about politics, and and I learned a thing or two. I, I think I probably learned more from my independent reading and from my my, my cohort, my peer group, uh, my buddies. I think I learned more in those ways about which which leads to follow. But I was I had a good general education, and I I read my way around. Understood. And share with our listeners something about the New Left and what drew you to become involved with the movement. Well, the the New Left wanted to be a new left. That is, it was it it, it felt an affinity with egalitarian movements, socialist movements, non-communist socialist socialist movements, and traditions, unions, and so on. Uh, but we wanted to be a new left. So why call ourselves a new left? Well, because we didn't like the communist tradition and we opposed it. We also felt various kinds of dissatisfaction with what had become a kind of uh, curdled and, 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 and rough and, 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 and run-down uh, anti-communist uh, left-wing movement. So we, we wanted to be fresh. We wanted to be both intellectually serious and direct actioned, action-minded. Um, it was. I was drawn by the by the intelligence and the, the soulfulness of the people, which was a very powerful combination. And the media continued to be an interest during that time for you, didn't it? Somewhat. I became aware um, at some point in the early '60s that media had an agenda of their own. You would do something. You would put on an action, and you would think it. It uh, amounted to this and that, and then you watch the version of it either on in a newspaper or on television, and say, "Lo and behold, it appeared as something else." I mean, th I think this began to appear to me quite early. I know we, I helped organize a demonstration in February 1962 against the arms race and nuclear testing and so on, and uh, somebody I knew who had taken a year off uh, from Harvard. Uh, was working as a reporter for the uh, New York Herald Tribune, which was then the the second leading uh, broad broadsheet newspaper in New York City, and he was he was assigned to cover our demonstration. He wrote up a long piece. Uh, he ended up taking his name off it because they censored it so badly, and that was kind of shocking and amazing to me. I'd grown up on the Herald Tribune; it had never dawned on me that an article in the Herald Tribune was not actually the voice of a reporter. It was actually the voice uh, of, of an organization. Uh, later, I came to see many similar things, and, and I became intrigued, just as I felt earlier in high school that uh, what I was seeing in, on Half Gun Will Travel uh, or, or Perry Mason was a contrivance that was written with, with conven under conventions. It was written with formula. So I, I, I rather quickly came to understand that uh, the news also was composed according to formula, and that it served institutional interests, um, which which represented a certain view of the world, which was uh, not necessarily mine or others. And some people could have taken that and been disillusioned and discouraged, and some people could have taken that as a catalyst for activism, and you seem to have gone the latter route. Yeah, I mean, there have been many occasions in my life when when the world looks stacked toward uh, deceit and uh, 
darkness and uh, would have been uh, comfortable in some ways to retire from it. Uh, but yes, I, I felt offended. I, I felt not only irritated at distortions. It's it's a hell of a thing when you think you amount to something and then uh, you go out in the world and discover that people have uh, clamped uh, a, 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 a disagreeable mask on onto you and they think that's who you are. It, it wasn't just the distortion, it was also something shameful about it. I, I found it intellectually and culturally disgraceful that we had this uh, immense apparatus uh, for gathering news um, and it was stupid, it was uh, inflammatory, it was distorted. Uh, it, it's, I found, I still find it actually rather insulting. So you still find it today uh, in some ways um, similarly insulting? Uh, here we are in 2015. Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not. Uh, I don't rant and rave about it the way I used to. I, I, I partly. <laughs> there's a lot I don't watch anymore. I don't. I, I don't watch the network news after years of. I've written books about it, and and I know quite a lot about how it works, but I can't take it anymore. Uh, I uh, don't watch the Sunday shows. They make me too angry at the uh, stupidity and, and banality of the, of the questions and the choice of guests. Um, you know, in general, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't much like the left-wing media. They just posted a piece today about RT.com, which is uh, Russia Today, and, and their uh, flirtation with, or more than flirtation, actually cohabitation with uh, a little drop of anti-Semitism in a recent, recent report they put out. Um, so in general, I look askance at um, in, the interested parties who uh, retail a view of the world, which in general is, I think is poor to terrible, uh, and, uh, and, and somehow inveigle themselves into the lives of people who take them seriously as conveying a, an adequate picture of the world. It's, it, it ain't an adequate picture of the world, and I can't just take it for granted. Yeah, and given all of the resources of the television industry, um, what do you ascribe all of this banality to? Um, well, that's a massive, that's a short question which requires a massive answer, but let me see if I can, Okay. something less than massive to say about it. Um, it, it, it at one level, it's a disgrace that the, uh, that the airwaves, which are public, publicly owned, are licensed to profit-making corporations that, with very little regulation, can basically do whatever they please. Um, most people don't understand that according to the Federal Communications Act of 1934, the airwaves belong to the people and they are licensed for specified periods of time to private corporations. How much, you might ask, does it cost to get this license? I mean, if I want to sell beer in New York, I have to, I have to buy a license. I don't know what it costs. I have to buy it. If I want to operate a television station, it costs me zero. If I want to operate a radio station, zero. So this is a free gift to large corporations who then act as if they are owners. So that's one uh, massive explanation for banality. You have the, the, the search on the part of the advertisers who are really the audience that matters for uh, eyeballs and eardrums 
who will uh, line up and be tempted. Now, th th this is not exactly new. In newspapers, of course, curry favor with, with publics as well. Um, but it, all the more accentuated in our time. The second thing is that um, there's a premium on conformity, on being uh, reliable, on being, that is to say, predictable. There's a premium on being, uh, making people comfortable and catering to their prejudices, which operates as a, as a magnetic force on, on uh, journalists and uh, professionals uh, elsewhere in media. Um, you know, journalists want audiences and they want to convince the audiences that they are not uh, out of the, that they, they won't really shock them. I mean, the news, as, as was once put by a, an important media researcher, news are really old. Um, if something is too unusual, it, um, it, it actually won't, uh, it, it has a hard time showing up. Um, and this is not, I, I don't have, uh, by no means do I think that this is uh, something diabolical, some sort of diabolical seizure of, of, um, uh, of media by uh, what used to be called a man in gray flannel suits. It, it, this happens in no small part because the gathering of news and the diffusing of news is, is a profession. It's, it's, it, it's an industrial process. It needs to be routinized. Uh, so you establish beats where you think you'll find news. Where you don't establish a beat, you won't find news. So things happen on, uh, you know, something, you know, for many years we, we had no environmental news. Why? Because it wasn't a beat. If I'm a, if I'm a police reporter, I go to the police headquarters and I, I get their handouts. If I'm a, a Washington correspondent, I go to the White House, I get their handouts, I get their daily briefing. If, I'm a, if I was an environmental reporter until about 20 years ago, where did I go? Well, I had to open my eyes, I had to convince an editor that this was, as journalists say, a story that was very hard to do. And even today, with what we know about global warming, climate change, and so on, there, there are precious few designated uh, reporters who uh, that is designated to the beat of uh, climate change and environment. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world. From the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with managing editor Robert Rim and sociologist, political writer, novelist, and cultural commentator Todd Gitlin. And given the rise of, of uh, social media and cable, the competition, the incredible competition, uh, as you called for those eyeballs and eardrums, uh, does this uh, competitiveness uh, force the network television to elevate its game and to to get off the banality and to uh, to truly try to rise above all of that? Not especially. Um, 
Although I should say here, I'm, I, as I said, I don't watch it regularly now, but, but I haven't seen anything coming across network television um, that uh, that would uh, lead me to uh, to modify what I'm about to say in, in any great degree. the uh, The premium is on the reliables. Uh, the The audiences for network news are older; they're they're stodgier. Uh, you can tell how old they are by the by seeing who wants to advertise on their shows and people who are selling old age diapers and and, and Viagra and so on. Um, you can um, so I, I think if anything the networks have become more conservative as they they uh, scratch and claw to hold on to the uh, the audiences that they have, which are not by any means the scale of, the, of what they are, but they're still by far the greatest. They number in the tens of millions. Um, many of the small, the little cable channels that we think of as people of a certain age and, and culture think of as very big deals like the Comedy Comedy Central, MSNB and so on, they're, they're, uh, Fox even, their audiences are paltry. Uh, you know, Bill O'Reilly is the biggest show on cable television. I think he gets two or three million uh, a night, um, as against the network, say, 15 million. Are you optimistic about network television? Uh, it sounds not. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I like a lot of other people. I, I, uh, I'm a beneficiary of the new wave of fiction that, that comes across HBO and Showtime and AMC and, and uh, Amazon and Netflix. Um, that's really the only television I watch now. I don't. I don't see anything in progress. I wrote a book about the tele te cable television industry. I should say, it was published in 1983. Uh, so I did a lot of work around the industry. I talked to a lot of executives and producers, program writers, and actors, and so on. Um, this was just the beginning of cable and um, sort of the breakdown of the three network monopoly or oligarchy, oligopoly. Um, and I must say, I you know, <laughs> nothing's happened in the last 30 years to arrest my sense that uh, initiatives are very hard to come by. There are exceptional moments. Uh, one of the shows I wrote about in that book, uh, which is called Inside Prime Time, was Hill Street Blues, which in its time was pioneering and adventuresome, and then it became itself a kind of formula. Yeah, it was one of my it was one of my favorite shows at the time. I remember that very very well. Good choice. Yeah, yeah. And and who was the uh, who was the actor who um, I'm not thinking of his name who was who was the actor the the, uh, the fellow who played uh, Sergeant Fr uh, Captain Ferrillo was named Daniel J Trabanti right yes 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 remember that well uh, well talking about uh, that book that you write uh, that you wrote rather and I'm thinking about uh, something that you wrote uh, far more recently Occupy Nation mm -hmm. uh, the complete title is Occupy Nation, The Roots, The Spirit, and The Promise of Occupy Wall Street. What, where do you see that movement going, and, and what do you feel it's accomplished? Well, it, it, it was as, a, as an on-the-scene corporeal movement in, in, in camped out in public squares. It, it uh, was a moment, not a movement, and it, it, it was dispersed um, by police uh, just about everywhere. Uh, there were hundreds, thousands of encampments, uh, not just in uh, in the states, but also overseas. So, in the short run, the answer is well, it was a bubble, but that's short-sighted. Um, it actually had, I think, a very large effect on American politics. Um, it uh, put the issues of inequality, 
uh, and uh, dominance of American politics by Wall Street right up center stage, where it has remained. Now it's been uh, four years since Occupy. Questions of inequality are now uh, debated in political debates, and even Republicans who really don't want to address the issue will think twice before they say what Mitt Romney said in 2012, that you know, the real problem in America is not the division between the 1% and the 49%, but the fact that 47%, as he said, were takers. Sure. Uh, that is to say, people who didn't pay income tax, although he didn't stop to notice that they do pay Social Security tax at, a, at a, an, an, an anti-progressive rate. But so I think the issues of equality and the dominance of the financial system by, uh, by wild players, uh, wild irresponsible and often criminal players uh, is an issue that hasn't gone away, won't go away. Um, and uh, that's a big shift. It's a big shift. Um, the, also, I think it should be noted that some of the Occupy movements in other countries have branched out. They've influenced uh, significant numbers of people to find, to look for continuations. Uh, sometimes those are in small uh, political parties, as in Spain, for example, where new parties have made a big difference, coming after their uh, occupation of what they called Los Indignados. Um, in uh, Turkey, the, move, the movement to uh, keep public a park that was about to be uh, rolled over, bulldozed, and turned into a mall, uh, that had lots of ramifications that are still playing out in Turkish politics. The Occupy movement in Hong Kong spawned something immense. It was a very serious challenge to the dominance uh, of, the, uh, of China's uh, central government over Hong Kong and that continues although it was dispersed and its leaders arrested and so on so um, you know if we take a longer view I think the Occupy movement was actually enormously successful for all its I should say for all of its uh, exoticism its its foolishness at various points which I write about in the book I mean I'm not a uh, wholehearted subscriber to everything everybody did down there in the parks but I think looking at looking at it it uh, it reflected it, it I mean it generated a, a new sense of possibility it put it changed the national agenda um, and it in some sense sort of rewrote, rewrote the map it redrew the map that people carry around in their heads about what's real in America and do you think that the the Occupy movement uh, helped to stoke uh, empathy among people who perhaps were unaware of all of these things or lived in their own kind of worlds uh, and, and just not tied into this? I think that, you know, I, I don't think it was really news that America was wildly unequal, that there are homeless people and that uh, CEOs make uh, obscene amounts of money and, and, uh, and, and drag down the world economy. But I think that what the, the real breakthrough of Occupy was to put before a large number of people, especially young people who hadn't experienced such a movement, the simple but very pregnant thought that they could actually do something. Um, even if they didn't know exactly what to do, that there was not only an urgency but an opportunity. There was there were there were open doors. Uh, that's a very big story. That's that's what I saw happen when I got caught in in the early 1960s. Not just the sense that the world is uh, monstrous in certain ways, but the invitation to actually live a different kind of life, which is not 
solely uh, dutiful. It's also lots of fun. Uh, a different kind of life in which you step forward as a citizen, as a member of a band, uh, of a community, uh, a band of brothers and sisters, and that this is actually an honorable and intelligent way to live. I think that that rewrote uh, something of the, of the sense of a collective future. And do you find that sense uh, to be really alive in the students that you teach today? Here and there. Um, you see it uh, by segments, which is also quite similar to, to where I came from. In the 1960s, we had these separate movements, which I mentioned. And, and SDS, one of SDS's slogans, by the way, was the issues are interrelated. So I think we see something similar now. Uh, on campuses for the last few years, the biggest uh, rumbles uh, are in the movement to divest universities and pension funds and, and other investments from fossil fuel corporations, which has a lot of momentum, has accomplished a great deal uh, in the last couple of years. I, I first became involved in it as a Harvard alumnus, and now I'm involved in it as a faculty member at Columbia. And uh, Harvard is quite obdurate and thick-headed about it. Columbia, I think, will move. And many universities have moved. The University of California, where I used to teach, has uh, divested from uh, coal and oil sands holdings. And, um, and Syracuse University has wholly divested, and lots of universities are in the progress. So that's one very big movement. Um, a second big movement is the Black Lives Matter movement, and there's some crossover. I would add, by the way, that the Occupy movement, a lot of the Occupy movement took Black Lives Matter quite seriously. This was long before Ferguson. But the sentiment was there. In New York, there were days when lots of people showed up in Zuccotti Park uh, to take part in uh, demonstrations against the stop and frisk procedures, which were uh, demonizing, criminalizing lots of young people of color. Um, so that movement obviously has tremendous momentum and speaks to lots of people. And along with it is our movements of immigrants, which crop up. Uh, and they, they rise and fall, but obviously there's a lot of energy and, and focus behind them. Um, the move, you know, the sort of current incarnation of the feminist movement uh, is, seems to be principally uh, focused on rape and sexual abuse. And uh, I don't want to be glib about how to uh, comprehend that movement uh, in the, if you will, ideological light of the rest of it. But they, uh, there, there are affinities at the very least i think it's become it's become uh, really uh, that being being activist in some sense is is now uh, no longer exotic i mean this i, I mean i have to tell you that when i first went to demonstrations um in the, in the early 60s it, this was quite odd we were supposed to be the silent generation mm. and uh, people were anxious people were loath to sign petitions we weren't that far behind McCarthyism. Uh, uh, people were loath to, uh, they thought they were jeopardizing their careers. And yeah, there were still apprehensions and so on. But uh, today, you know, demonstrations are a dime a dozen. I mean, that creates a different problem for social movements of how they, how they distinguish themselves from routine. But it, it's, it's no longer, uh, I mean, even the category activist 
which which I don't especially like uh, for a variety of reasons. It, it's now a, sort of a known category. You can you can put the slug that says activist on the screen, and people say, "Oh yeah, activist. I know what that's like." And it it doesn't have the kind of resonance that it had, say, thirty forty years ago, it's does not, it? It's yeah. not demonic. Yeah. I mean, of course, all kinds of right wing activists as well. You know, activism is not is not a position. It's a disposition to act on the world and that is now taken for granted which I think is a healthy thing in a democracy. And about students and young people, you were a professor of sociology and director of the mass communications program at UC Berkeley uh, before serving as a professor of culture journalism and sociology at New York University and as we mentioned you're now at Columbia. Has the student body changed over the years as far as their, um, their skills, their awareness, their desire to give back to society? I re-entered graduate school in 1974 at Berkeley. Um, there were a number like me who had been out in the movement and were trying to find a perch at the university. We were very mindful of what was going on in the world. Um, we weren't typical then, by the way. I mean, I think um, in the 70s, uh, feminism was probably the, the, the most glowing of the movements. Uh, otherwise, I think um, my peers weren't paying that much attention. The war was just about to end with the Vietnam War. Um, over the years, for the most part, to, to overgeneralize, uh, students have paid less attention. They don't read the paper. They're not very, very well informed. Some of them don't even read BuzzFeed. Um, um, that's one thing. Second thing is their their historical grounding is weak. Now, of course, our elders thought our historical grounding was weak, and that it was probably true in many ways. Uh, so this is, you know, one of the prerogatives of age is to look at younger people and to say, you know, they they don't they don't know enough to, they're not paying enough attention. Um, I don't know how to objectively measure this. Uh, I've tried. I've looked at <laughs> polls over the years. They're not terribly illuminating. Uh, it's true that a higher percentage of Americans are college graduates than ever before, but it's also true, given that, you'd expect a much higher degree of general familiarity, general sort of ease at ease with the world outside your doorstep, which which I don't see. But I also see, uh, you know, certain streaks of of awareness, especially with respect to climate and environment. Um, I think that. Uh, uh, the historical depth is the weak. I mean, most of my students today were born that had no memory of, of communism. They don't know, really, that there are still nuclear weapons in the world, many thousands of them. Uh, so there's, you know, there's a degree of, 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 of people sort of living in absentia uh, so far as the public world is concerned. And yet, uh, then there were all you know, yeah. also you know, extraordinary exceptions. Yeah, and and yet the availability of information, both uh, in the United States and worldwide, is is ne has never been greater. Isn't that right? Yes, but this is a, there's a trap here. Yeah. The problem was never lack of information. Um, the problem is having a way of thinking about information so that you can process it so you can interpret it so you can know what it means otherwise you're surrounded by a flood uh, by, by little droplets of of tidbits your your life is a trivia quiz uh, you may have a vast input of, of pixels and and megabytes 
but it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't add up. It's just fluff. It's dust. And so to to be able to get to, to be able to master information rather than be mastered by it, um, you need to think. You need to think and 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 exchange thought, converse about thought, dispute, struggle to understand. Well, that's a <laughs> that's a minority art. But it is, uh, isn't it, part of the responsibility of university professors to help to teach that art? Absolutely. Yeah, even though it may not be explicitly stated in the uh, in the course brochures. Uh, no, but I mean, I you know, you I mean, students are here to think, and teachers are here to think with them, and and to inv and to invite them into the thought that they need to take seriously, which is not to say jam them with with prefab ideas but it's to enable them to navigate through a, a you know a dizzying world uh with with some understanding of what human beings have encountered at other times but also some understanding of what's unprecedented and 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 also um, conceivable in, in in the present and in the foreseeable future and what advice would you offer to young people seeking to become writers, uh, to become journalists, uh, perhaps even professors themselves? Read good books. Mm -hmm. um, how do you know what a good book is? A student once asked me that at Berkeley. It was memorable because I didn't have a glib answer to it. Um, read books that make you think. Read books that you don't understand. Read writing that makes you or invites you to pause and wonder why the author said that. Ask why an author is going to the trouble of writing this book. Who is she or he writing against? Writing's hard. Why do people go to the trouble? I, I, I start, I, 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 it's a question I frequently ask. Um, learn to distinguish between the, the better and the worse. Now, not everybody will agree on what's better and worse, but learn to think about what writing is doing. Um, those are some of the things I would offer. And that's also something that uh, professors and also teachers at the high school level, college level, uh, graduate level, uh, this is something that helps uh, students separate the wheat from the chaff, as it were, right? Uh, because they often don't know where to go and they often don't know uh, what kind of trash is out there, regardless of the content itself. But is it informed? Is it intelligent? Is it well researched? You know, and this is something that uh, that I found uh, to really inherent in really great teaching and great teachers. Uh, amen. This is one reason why, although I spent a number of years studying popular culture, I'm I'm not well disposed toward the notion that the content of education should be popular culture. And the reason is simple: the popular culture is already popular. People come to school with a with a repertory of it, and not to mention all the the texts and YouTube's and whatnot that are that are flying into their flying into their sensoria uh, day after day. No, the university is a place where you will settle into you will learn what's to be offered by the stuff that's not popular, um, because it and uh, which is a foundation for thought. There's no way to uh, to fathom. Uh, what 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 the you know for example the the state of of religion in in the world which is obviously so important without having read uh, the 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 old and new testaments parts of them 
Uh, and also, I would say Plato. I don't have time to explain what I mean by that, but uh, that's a foundation. Um, it's it's not possible to think seriously about the, the world of of nations and tribes and war without thinking about the, the, the Greeks and the Romans and their wars. Um, there's no way to grasp what the way in which America is moving without reading uh, the Federalist Papers and the Declaration of Independence. I was just talking to a group of, of community college teachers about this yesterday. And yes, we give them a number of angles that I didn't learn when I was a kid. So we not only read the Declaration of Independence and the Federalist Papers, we also read an extraordinary lecture delivered by Frederick Douglass in, uh, I think, 1852 called What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, which is absolutely stunning. Uh, statement uh, of uh, an ad, ad, you know necessarily complex statement about um, the part played by slavery in American life and the reason why the Constitution is, as he puts it, uh, eventually a uh, a glorious liberty document. Uh, nonetheless, uh, so I mean these are foundations. They make you feel less lonely. And shame on us, uh, all of us, if we don't learn from the past. And and talking about foundation for thought, you've had a long, productive career. You're still going strong. What causes some people to continue embracing curiosity, uh, love for learning, while others seem to reach a certain point of achievement and are content to coast on their accomplishments? I don't know. I've always been like this. I I I, uh, I was interested in lots of subjects. I was a math major. Uh, I was a math uh, achiever in high school. I was a math major in college. I also won an English prize. I was writing poetry. I read here and I read there. And um, I don't seem to know how to do it otherwise. I, I don't have an institutional recommendation about how to cultivate this sort of thing, except you know to reward it where it shows up. I, I've, I've been seeing individual students today, not teaching a class. And in each case, um, a discussion has begun with the research they're doing and, and then has sidled up to some other dimension that uh, might have to do with discussion of fiction or contemporary politics that I know the student will be interested in. So I, in a way, I, I suppose, I try to model being omnivorous uh, and, and, and in a world of hyper-specialization also to suggests it's possible to live this way. It's possible to think this way. Are students aware of that, in fact, that it is indeed possible to live this way? Uh, some are, and as many as I can get my hands on uh, come to understand it. I, I don't mean to say that they're necessarily waiting to hear it, because we get, I mean, our, our PhD program is interdisciplinary, so we get um, restive people, people who are uncomfortable within silos. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think they already come with that sort of disposition. But but I but uh, you know when I teach undergraduates, which I I do um, at least once a year, uh, I try to present that as well and make a case for being uh, uh, as <laughs> I used to say a well-rounded person. Yes. Well, there's a reason that became a cliche. Yes, and let's bring it back. Uh, indeed. And so from Foundation for Thought to a well-rounded person, uh, Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Uh, the best way to reach Todd is toddgitlin.net. Uh, click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. 
Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.